actually finishing our series on Mark today. For those of you who are just joining today, um, it's been an awesome series. For me, uh, I spend a month longer than you guys because Mississauga Campus actually started a month before the downtown. So I spent last four months in the book of Mark. And it was so exciting. It was so good to just get an infusion of the gospel in my life again. And, it, you know, in this 12 weeks, we only got to just scratch the surface. That's why Pastor Susan and I, we really prayed about it. We're going through the book of uh, Mark again in our life groups. Jesus the King by Tim Keller is uh, basically his a book on the book of Mark. So uh, I really encourage you guys to sign up for the life group and just be impacted by the gospel this upcoming school year. And this upcoming fall season. So please do uh, join a community as we uh, go deeper into God's words this year. So today's sermon ends the same way we started the series, guys. Twelve weeks ago, we asked the question, who is Jesus? What is the identity of Jesus? And we asked the same question again today. Today's text leads us to ask, who is Jesus to you? So in order to kind of understand today's message, we're going to jump into chapter 15. Uh, again, guys, uh, if you guys don't have a physical Bible, you're going to have a hard time keeping up. If you need a physical Bible, talk to me. But open up your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 15. We're going to jump from verse to verse. So chapter 15, despite being physically tortured, orally mocked and jeered and reviled at, Jesus endures on the cross to the point of his death. And Jesus experienced this cosmic, universal loneliness on the cross. Where not only his disciples have not betrayed and left him. But he's for the first time apart under the wrath of God. Apart from the Father as well. So in the, in the midst of this crucifixion scene, I want to point out. Mark chapter 15, verse 39, it says, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And you need to realize this verse is very important. You need to carefully read through the book of Mark and realize this verse right here, 1539, is the first and the last time in the book of Mark, someone actually recognizes and confesses Jesus as the Son of God. First and last. So imagine all the other people that Jesus met up to this point. All the other possible categories that the author could have used. We have a devout Jewish attendees that go to synagogue every week. We have the Pharisees and the scribes, the experts of the Old Testament scriptures. We have the disciples, the many in-circle people that follow Jesus around for a couple of years. Or even at least Peter, who got so close to getting it right in chapter 8, but didn't at the end. Out of all these options, different people that could have confessed Jesus is the Son of God. Chapter 15, verse 39 says, a centurion, a centurion confessed. 
And we need to recognize uh, the historical kind of point of who the centurion is. A centurion was a Roman citizen, a Gentile, a moral outsider according to the Bible. A soldier by training who killed for a living on the battlefield. And historically, the centurions were the ones responsible for crucifying criminals charged under the Roman judicial system. So Mark is telling us that a true, authentic Christian faith is not from living a good, not, not living a good moral obedience or some kind of religious, religiously perfect life, or even simply hanging around in proximity to Jesus. It's not just because you sit here and you've came here for long enough, you've heard enough sermons that you have true, authentic Christian faith. Mark is telling us that true faith in Christianity a faith that leads to salvation comes from being a type of a person like the centurion. A person who looks and is awed by Jesus on the cross. A person who is awed by his work of salvation. And realizing he did nothing to help Jesus get there on the cross. In fact, he's the one who nailed him to the cross. That's what Mark is telling us. A spirit like the centurion is true, authentic Christian faith. So, word of encouragement for all of you who are new to our church, new to church in general, new to reading the Bible, first time hearing about Jesus. Be encouraged. And reading the Bible, when you hear the name of Jesus and you seek out earnestly, you will see how he saves you. He loves you. And you are closer to the kingdom of God. And unfortunately, on the flip side, for those of us who have come to church for a while now, for an extended period of time, we start to identify with a different group of people in the narrative. We start to identify with more like the disciples in the text. Where are the disciples? <laughs> disciples are not mentioned. Or some of us, we start to identify with the three women from starting from verse 40. Mary Magdalene, Mary mother of James and Joseph and Salome. You might have noticed that none of Jesus' disciples are mentioned from this point in the text. And in fact, I said eager Peter you know, a few weeks ago. Eager Peter, who was always the most passionate, always the one that's going out first and showing his passion and follow Jesus. Ever since he betrayed Jesus and denied him in chapter 14, he's nowhere to be seen. He's never mentioned again. He never comes back. Sometimes we're like the disciples. We're like eager Peter. 
As soon as we see oppression and weakness from outside the church that attack our, attack our faith, that attack our Savior, and our Savior looks weak, our God looks weak, we abandon our post. No way I want to believe in this. No way I want to give, this my, give my life into this. Also notice the three women, uh, three women starting from verse 40. Watching from a distance, seeing everything that's going on. And perhaps hoping until the last moment possible, until the last breath, somehow the circumstance will change. The scene will change somehow. However, we read chapter 15, verse 42 to 45. Jesus is indeed completely, unquestionably dead. In verse 46, Jesus' body is taken through the traditional burying process. He's wrapped in linen shroud, laid in a tomb, and a stone is rolled in front of the entrance of the tomb. And maybe even up to this point, the three women... If you read verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother of James and Joseph, are still there watching from afar. Perhaps hoping that the last second miracle would happen. You know, as they slowly see the entrance closing with the stone rolling, they're like, come on, come on, Jesus, come on. There's a still a little bit of hole you can jump out of. And eventually... Their hopes, their dreams is crushed as the tomb entrance is closed. I don't know, this is a pretty silly example, but I don't know if you guys would agree with me. Um, or, I mean, if you guys have gone through this. I am such a klutz when it comes to my cell phone. I drop it all the time. Uh, I went to India for missions this past June. And I was getting out of my rickshaw one day. And my phone slipped out of my hand. And I, it was, everything started to go in slow motion. And there goes my phone coming down. And my superhero strength kicked in. My super speed kicked in. And my foot started to move. I'm like, oh, I'm going to catch it. And I'm, oh, there's this hope and vision in my head. I'm going to be like, oh, God, I'm going to catch it softly. Right? I'm going to catch and land it softly. And I, the, my hope was so big in that split second. Up to the moment the cell phone is about to hit my foot, I'm like, I'm going to save my fragile iPhone from hitting that cement. But no matter how big my vision, no matter how big my hope is in that moment, reality sets in. I can't change the laws of physics. The moment the phone hits my foot, I bam, I kick it. And it goes flying. It kicked it so hard that it jumped out of my otter box and I cracked the screen. I wish I could say it was the only time, but it happened way too many times. So all joking aside, now think about it. No matter how ideal, no matter how grand, no matter how much you hope for something, you vision for something in life, and no matter how dire you want the result to come out in a certain way no matter how desperate you are for that hope in the end when reality sets in to a certain extent we've all felt this before we get a dose of reality 
and we face hopelessness as our dreams are crushed, as our hopes are crushed by reality. So we kind of know, understand what the three women are going through in the story. As they slowly see the stone rolling, come on, Jesus, there's a still a little bit of hole you can jump out. They're absolutely crushed. The man they've been following and serving and believing he is the Messiah, he's our Savior, our life is going to be set because he has come. Now he is dead and there's no hope. The tomb is closed. Many of us have experienced this kind of crushing of the small glimmering hope in our lives and the stone just rolls over. It could be, for instance, a school application, a school opportunity, a work opportunity, a promotion, a relationship, especially with loved ones. And if you haven't experienced this crushing of your hope, I'm sorry to tell you, you will experience it eventually. Because in our reality, nothing is infinite. Everything is finite. And death is inevitable. No matter how much you love a person, no matter how much you love a person yourself, you cannot dodge death. Death is inevitable. Because the Bible teaches us that when sin entered the world, we had to pay the just payment for that sin. And the Bible tells us it was death. At that moment in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve took and ate that fruit of knowledge of good and evil, we like Adam and Eve, we all choose to be our own God. We all fall into the temptation of the evil one. And we all are cursed to return to dust. Death is inevitable. Nothing in this world is infinite. So with that light note, um, this reminder of, of hopelessness, we come to today's passage. Mark chapter 16, verse 1 to 3. And we see the three women once again. Let me read for us one, three. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? So with this crushed hopelessness in their hearts and giving up completely, seeing the hopes of Jesus coming alive, crushed, gone, as a stone rolled in front of the tomb. They return after three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. They return on the first day of the week after Jesus died on the cross. And they spent all this money to buy spices and they were going to anoint him. So they probably bought oil as well, olive oil. So they spent all this money buying spices and olive oil to anoint him which was a practice common in ancient Israel to lessen the horrendous stench of rotting flesh in the tomb. And trying to kind of beautify 
a course that's decaying. So they would have spent all this money beautifying a decaying corpse. And they be, begin to worry on their way there. I don't know why they didn't think about it before. You know, a bunch of Roman soldiers, they had to roll the sto stone in front of the tomb. Out of us three, who can roll the stone away? So notice a, a couple things pop out in this point of the story so far. First, there are still no male disciples. There's no male disciples. It's just three women. Uh, and if, I'm sorry if anyone gets offended by this, but historically, in ancient times, women were so heavily marginalized, they would have no physical or even social strength and be resource, resourceful to try and move that stone on their own. There was just no way they were going to do it. But the fact that they weren't even thinking about asking at least one of the 11 disciples just shows how hidden they were, just how dejected they were. There wasn't even an option. Man, those guys are losers, just crying in their room. They won't even help us. And the second thing that, point come, you know, that pops out in this narrative, notice that despite Jesus' teaching, I said this over and over again too, despite Jesus' teaching plainly over and over again, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, that he will die and he'll be raised to life three days later, everybody still assumes Jesus is dead. Everybody still assumes Jesus is dead. Even when he taught them over and over again, I have to die to fulfill the scripture. I'll be raised in three days. Everyone still assumes he's dead. And this is exactly why we do not fully understand what the resurrection really means for the Christian world. For the Christian's day-to-day -day life. We treat our faith and spiritual life as a distant, a separate thing from us. A separate thing from our reality. And we begin to live in the materialistic world as the priority. Because when we think about our hope of salvation, we stop before the death. Oh, Jesus was a cool guy. Jesus was a loving guy. Jesus, you know, taught all this cool stuff to all these groups of people. And when he died, you know, and you know, everything else is kind of blurry after, but we'll get to see after, after we die. We're not clear about the resurrection. We think that after we die, we'll get wings like the Philadelphia cream cheese commercial and to go up to the clouds and just eat bagels all day. Like the disciples, we see who really knows what happens, you know, who, whatever happens after death, we'll stay there. But right now, I need to tend to my needs. I need to tend to my mourning. I need to tend to my uh, hurting. I'm going to hide away from the, whatever Jesus is doing, let, let that be. I'm gonna, I got to deal with this first. Or like the three women who seem like they have stronger faith, but what are they doing? They're going to dress up the dead. They're going to beautify the dead. They dress up the dead things in regret and sorrow so that the world doesn't smell and see the disgusting view of God. 
that they think somehow they need to help Jesus. So day to day, our lives, what ends, up, what ends up becoming is we spend all our resources and money to buy spices and oil. We dress up what's already dead in our lives. We try so hard to hide what's happening behind that stone. We hide our sins. We hide our brokenness. We avoid sharing, being vulnerable. Because we think this reputation that we have is a finite resource. This reputation that I live for, that I built, operates like money. It's finite. It's for now. And once I lose it, it's gone. As a result, we become self-conscious, self-centered, self-righteous, self-justifying. The list goes on and on. So brothers and sisters, hear me out. Here, here's... One thing, if you're going to walk out of here, here's what I want to challenge you with. Christianity is not about beautifying or dressing up what is already dead in our sins and our brokenness. Instead, it is about admitting and facing the sins and brokenness so we see the true beauty of Jesus. And we dress in his righteousness. I'm going to say that again. Christianity... It's not about beautifying and dressing up what's already dead in your life. Trying to hide your sins, trying to hide your brokenness. Trying to put a little dress on it. Instead, Christianity is about admitting and facing. In other words, repenting. The sins and brokenness. So we see the true beauty of Jesus in comparison. And we dress in his righteousness. We dress in something that was so much more glory, glorious. We dress in something that was so much more beautiful. But it was free. In his grace. Christianity is about, is, is not, Christianity is not about our beauty. It's not about your beauty. It's not about my beauty. But in fact, it's about Jesus' beauty. That's Christianity. And we need to face the reality that we are so ugly. We have this ugliness inside our souls that grows like mushrooms in the dark. And we collectively, we confess it. And we collectively see the beauty of Jesus. All together. No one miss out. How do I know that this is true? Because of verse 4 to 6. Let me read it for us. And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. And it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right hand, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they had laid him. I know this to be true, what I said about Christianity. Because the stone is rolled back. Stone is not there. The tomb is empty. 
and Jesus' physical body is not there. This proves that this is not the end. This death that we all face, this hopelessness that we all face is not the end. Brothers and sisters, the resurrection of Christianity, resurrection in Christianity is a resurrection of the same exact body that we bear today. Just like Jesus' resurrection. Jesus proves in his resurrection that though, uh, through his work to and on the cross overcomes and crushes the crushing hope, 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 hopelessness and the finite world that we live in. And it renews and revives it to the fullest. We don't leave all of this physical stuff behind. We don't leave our work behind. We don't leave our taste, smell, sight, sound, touch behind. In fact, we carry it with us, confess it before the Lord, and he makes it even more perfect than we could have ever imagined. In the resurrection, we will work not as slaves for someone else's glory, but we will delight in the work of God's glory. We no longer will eat endlessly to fill an insatiable hunger, but we will taste something like we've never tasted before and fulfill our taste buds like never before. We no longer will smell things that are decaying, a horrendous stench of decay in our world, but we will smell an endless bloom of fruits and flowers. Nothing will decay. We won't be saddened at the sights of fading beauty. I mean, you know, every day we look in the mirror, and after, well, I think it's about after 25, we stop creating cells, I believe. So every day after 25, we're just be watching ourselves die in the mirror. We're watching the fading beauty in the mirror. And we're putting stuff on it to prolong its death. But we no longer will face unfading beauty because we, our sight will be so satisfied for the everlasting and the beauty and the love of Jesus in his full glory. We will hear choirs of angels singing. Songs and sounds that are so much better than we, what, anything like we've heard before. And we will no longer have physical pain. And even the physical scars and imperfection that we see today will be made perfect. And we will be embraced in his everlasting arms of eternal God. I know it's hard to make the connection here, but why the centurion? Why the centurion? Why do we start the sermon with the centurion? Why the centurion? A moral outsider was, why was he the first one to recognize Jesus? Why was he the first one to stand there and just be in awe of Jesus' work on the cross? It is because the centurion can easily admit to his faults and isn't afraid to admit there's evil in the world and he 
crucify Christ. Unlike eager Peter, unlike Peter, unlike a long-time churchgoer, like the disciples, we start to build walls, we start to build reputation, we start to build resources that will only last a little while to our confidence in death. But this is where it's his grace. I, I don't know if you guys, some of you guys who've been to church a long time, you're just, you're just like, Charles, it's too condemning. But go to gospel. Listen to this. Verse 7. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Jesus is calling his disciples back even after the stuff they've done. And he singles out Peter. You know, if it's, it's the gospel of Jesus that he doesn't stay in the tomb after he's resurrected. He probably had every right to stand there in the tomb and say to the three women, Where, where's my disciples? Where is that Peter? He better beg for mercy. He doesn't say that. He puts the sin and brokenness in the tomb. It's put to death. And what does he do? He leaves it. He goes ahead. And what does he say? Call them back to me. My grace is sufficient. Jesus has left behind in the tomb put it to death he put death itself to death and Jesus is inviting all of us all the way from the centurions first-time churchcomers to the eager Peters all of us to repent and to follow him where he has already gone go after him And we're not going to consider, uh, if, if you guys have questions about this, please do ask me um, afterwards. Uh, we're not going to consider verse 9 to 20. Uh, you know, that later contemporary Mark editors probably put it in and thinking, oh, Mark didn't do his homework. He didn't finish the story. So all these editors probably came together. I'm going to put a little bit of Luke, a little, little bit of Matthew, a little bit of John, a little bit of Exodus and complete the story. So that's like verse 9 to 20. But I love the fact the original author Stops the story at verse 8. And verse 8 reads this. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonished, uh, astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. The original uh, Greek word for astonishment in this part, in this last part is ecstasis. Where we get the word ecstasy from. Meaning they were amazed to the point. They were experiencing out-of-body amazement. That's where we get the word ec ecstasy from. So brothers and sisters, as I close, this is the question I want to ask. When you look at Jesus, who do you see? What do you see? What do you feel? 
Do you see a good moral teacher? Do you see a religious leader? A lunatic maybe? But he is the son of God. For those of us who are new to church, those of us who have been here for all our lives, the reaction should be the same if he's truly the son of God. We should be in ecstasy, astonishment, amazement that we, our breath, our words are taken out of us when we behold his holiness upon that cross. When we behold the gospel and how amazing this gospel welcomes every single one of us. It should amaze us. We should be in awe like the centurion. So brothers and sisters, drop the spices. Guys, drop the oil. Drop the front. The tomb is empty. The dead is left for the dead. Approach and enter the empty tomb and encounter Jesus. What I mean by that is, it's a lot of Christian, Christianese mumbo jumbo, but what I mean is read the Bible. I invite you, read the Bible. Believe the Bible as the holy word of God, the true word of God. And be assured that his life and death will make your life and death and the resurrection perfect. And today, we're invited to the communion table, not as a religious symbol, not as a religious ritual, but to recognize Jesus is saying resurrection begins now in this community when we recognize we are all to be vulnerable, we're all to face our sins and brokenness. And we don't leave our senses and our taste behind when we rip and we touch and we see and hear the sound and we dip and we taste and all of us are welcome those who have accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior and we get to experience resurrection eternity starting today so with this I'm going to give us a time to pray let's pray Brothers and sisters, what do you see? Who do you see when you see Jesus? I just want to give us a minute just to pray and to think about that. Where have you taken the spices and oils in your life?
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you called all of us to the centurion, to the eager Peter, all of us are welcome and invited to accept your gospel and receive your grace. So as we continue to be challenged by the word of God and be handled by the word of God, may your glory be revealed and may we see your face and we taste resurrection, eternity, more and more as a church all together. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.